0: So I have the opportunity for a bit of a discussion now then, so I uh, just to encourage you to ask whatever you want to ask, actually, but perhaps uh, people, first of all, who have something to ask about what I said earlier. Yes? You asked something about, you said... You mentioned that uh, things can change because of your karma. Is one in charge of one's karma? Can one change it? Can one change one's karma? Yeah. Uh, I'll give a fairly short answer to that cause it's a different subject a bit. But uh, the answer is kind of yes and no. Uh, in some respects we can't change it. Uh, you know, we we will receive the results of our previous actions. But uh, if you look at how the mind works, then you see when a memory arises, what can happen uh, depends on how you perceive that memory. So although those memories are going to come back to us, you say that this is our karma, Our regrets are going to come up, or something, or uh, memories of the past, then uh, it can also make a huge difference how we see those memories, what the result is in the heart. So, yes, the memories are going to come up, you know, as you find out as a practitioner that one of my old monk friends said. You know, I thought I'd get away with all these things I did when I was a youngster, used to deal drugs. And he said, I thought I got away with it until I became a monk. (laughs) And I realised you don't get away with anything. You had to sit through a lot of suffering over that. Um, And yes, some of that's inevitable. And, uh, you know, the the Buddha encourages us to uh, endure with that and uh, let it pass. And yet, the way we see that karma, uh, the way we perceive what's arising makes a huge difference. So, um, a potent example from my own life, of my father's death, is that for many years after my dad died, then whenever I remembered my dad, I'd feel really sad. He died in a very sudden, tragic way. And yet, over the years, as my way of seeing things has changed and my way of seeing what what happened has changed, then the memories had a different effect. So although the memories would come up, there'd be a different reaction to those memories. Until more recently, whenever I remember my dad, it's just like, oh yes, I wonder what he's up to now and this kind of thing, attitude. So if we learn to see things in a different way, then uh, that can have a very different reaction. Is that a good answer to your question? No. Wrong wrong one. Do you want to try again? (laughs) If I start just rattling on about the wrong thing, do put your hand up and say, sorry, but... It was more in relation to the uh, physical, when you were talking about the slip disc, for example, with you, and to the other lady. So oh, it was yeah. like that something in your past karma and. Oh, yes, your happened. karma so it, it can it come along. And that, yeah, yeah well, just having a body is, you know, the, walk, walking around having a body, you could say, is our karma as human beings, isn't it? So if you've got one of these things and you're walking around in one, then things can happen to it and uh you know you you end up uh in difficult circumstances, but then it makes a huge difference how you see it so you know there are times when my back trouble gets me down you know if i if I get it wrong you know say you know if i if I think to myself um, okay i 've got to go to the chiropractor this afternoon, then I can feel kind of frustrated or or fed up with the whole thing after a year and a half. But if I say to myself, okay, I've got to take my body to the chiropractor this afternoon, (laughs) then it's a different experience. Uh, But that's not just an idea, it's a shift in perception. You know, that you perceive your body in a different way. You perceive it as not who you are, um, but you perceive you're seeing your relationship to it, you know. So with my back, then I have to do you know, a lot of exercises and stretches and all kinds of things. And uh, yeah, it can get a real drag. And if I miss, then I suffer for it. So you know, I have to work for my body. You know, but then, so so if I if I had a but day, days where I have a bad attitude or I can't kind of raise my mind up into it. Then, then it's a downer. But on a good day, then it's there's a lot of uh, wisdom and compassion that come out of it. You know, the body is a kind of natural source of wisdom and compassion that can be our greatest teacher. Um, If you if you drag it into in the ultimate sense, you know, if my meditation's going well, if I can, uh, or more uh, in a higher sense, if the meditation's going well, and if you can pull the body into a peaceful mind and see it in a different way, uh, then you don't have a problem with it. Uh, We don't have a problem, you have wisdom over it, but you also have compassion. You have a lot of compassion for other people with physical problems. You you realize a predicament we're actually in as human beings, carrying these things around that go wrong eventually and uh, get old. Is that a better answer? (laughs) Good. Uh, Here, maybe. As you wait for the microphone, it gets onto the tape. I was just curious to know how would you define the difference between mindful awareness in the psychological sense and the spiritual sense. Yeah, that was kind of a, that was the thrust of the talk, really, wasn't it? That um, so, in some ways, I tried answering that one already. Um, that this, I would say that the spiritual sense is just some, taken mindfulness deeper than the in, than the psychological sense, um, in particular. Uh, Including the body and the relationship between the mind and body, which psychology now is getting around to. So, there's, like I said, there's a lot of talk now about uh, the mind being not just in the brain but in the body. And, you know, they're, they're doing all their cognitive science now, they're doing in, a, in what they're calling embodied situations because they realize that people's thinking is formed by their relationship with their bodies, you know, they orientating themselves according to the, to the orientation of their bodies, these kinds of things, embodiment theories, so also also the whole emotional world and the, the way that the body uh, is a kind of extended extension of the nervous system that previously you know there, there used to be a, a kind of acknowledgement of of uh, these kind of uh, uh, top down, what you, you put it? Top down kind of control systems, you know, the, the body, the mind controlling the body. But now there's a much more acknowledgement of what you'd call bottom up processes. Uh, and mindfulness is the thing that includes all of these, it sees what they're actually for. You know, to me, mindfulness is something that isn't just. Looking at these processes is in a in an un, in a kind of uh, as just uh, uh just for the feeling of them so much as to see what they're really for you know so feeling for example you know that funny example I was giving at the end of the talk about looking down at yourself then you know in in terms of in terms of a kind Buddhist view of mindfulness, then feelings are things that have a function in the world. So, so when you're looking out into the world, then your feelings are going to kind of make sense to you because that's what they're for. You know, mindfulness is about, uh, your feelings about orienting, orienting yourself and feeling out your situations and what's happening and informing your conscience and all this kind of thing. Uh, when you direct them, to, you, you're kind of directing them towards themselves. You're entering into something a bit kind of strange because that's not what they're actually designed for. Um, so you end up with this. There's another fascinating theory recently about that there are two different experiences that we have of the body called the subject body and the object body. And. Uh, the subject body is the thing that does things, it's our kind of instrument in life. And the object body is the, the way we see our bodies or bodies generally, like a body is an object in the mind. And uh, to me, then, uh, my, what mindfulness does is it brings these two uh, things together. You know, that we, we're able, we can see the body as, a, as an instrument, as our minds are directed out into the world. Our bodies are an instrument in the world to doing what we're doing. Um, and then as we, as we look down at our bodies, we see our bodies as, a, as an object in the mind, then there's no confusion. Uh, but if we start to look down at our bodies and we see our feelings, then there's this kind of confusion that goes on in our minds. Because <laughs> it's kind of like systems kind of tangling with each other Clashing with each other, something like that. You know, people people go people go into this for years and years, trying to work out what their feelings are like. This, um, and in some ways, it has a it has a value because you are seeing you are you know if you if you have an open mind, you will come round to seeing what the relationship between body and mind is, and what feelings really are, and um, what they're for. But of course, you know, a lot of people, they tend to fix onto a particular view about things. Uh, well, in my eyes, the Buddhist view is the only clear one. I haven't found a, another clear one, apart from perhaps this, uh, you know, if any intellectuals here want to want to look into the, the uh, phenomenological model of embodiment, there's some sense in that, because it's a shifting thing. And people, people are beginning to see, scientists are beginning to see that the relationship between mind and body is not a fixed thing. Uh, which is a meditator you're getting in touch with quite big time. Uh, this kind of dynamic between uh, mind, or, uh, mind and body, ultimately spirit or empty mind and body. So that's a bit more into the kind of psychology of it. Is that what you were after, no? (laughs) No, it it was, it was. I was just thinking in in a sense, uh, it's interesting how mindfulness can be a sort of a slippery slope, and I mean that in a positive way, to anatta, to spirituality. (laughs) And anybody who's a bit afraid of spirituality might start to worry when they practice mindful awareness because it leads to that sort of emptiness, which might be quite scary for some people. Yeah, the scariness of the, people talk about the scariness of emptiness is because there there people that haven't experienced it. If you've experienced it, it's not scary at all. It's lovely, uh, one thing. But the the other way, the 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 kind of uh, uh, the other way in which this is all safe is if you take your body in there with you. If you don't take your body in there with you, you can end up in a kind of um, in a space that's ignoring the physicality of our existence, in some way or another, and then you end up with a rude awakening when you do your back in or bump into something or something. But this is what this is ultimately. This is what also reminds us of what to keep going for the ultimate, isn't it? Which is a mind that's not dependent on the body. That's what can drive us on. So that can either, you know, seeing this relationship can either drag us down or drive us on, and drive us on to find something somewhere that's not dependent on the body, and that's not, you know, to again to reassure in a different kind of way. It's not something that that what that is isn't something that's withdrawn from the body either. Uh, it's a way of seeing the body. Being with the body that takes us to nibbana. You know, nibbana is not somewhere else. You know, nibbana is here and now. The dhamma is here and now. Nibbana is here and now. So there's lots of different. If you know, people try to conceive, this is a danger of talking about the fruits of the practice like this. That people conceive in different ways about what it will be like. You know, it's like, well, emptiness. Well, that, well, what about? You know, where's my mum? You know, is my mum in that emptiness? You know. Uh, I'd miss my mum if, if it was, you know, or, uh, you know, is, is my mum in Nibbana? So I've Thai people, in you know, a very honest, saying, well, I'm, I'm not really sure about Nibbana, Rajan, you know, I don't know, is my mum going to be there? You know, it's really honest, isn't it? Touching. So, well, this is the kind of dangers that you get into if you try and conceive past your practice. If you don't try and conceive past your practice, you don't fall into these kinds of problems. You see that it's all safe, and you know even the whole psychic thing, which people worry about around Samadhi. You know that you're going to strange things are going to happen. You know, and it could all get very kind of confusing, and and uh, you could go crazy, something like that. You know, it's all just ideas about what can happen. There's no reality to any of it, so there's always this danger if you take your thinking further than you practice. If you don't, if you keep your practice first, and you're observing what's happening in the present moment, you keep your mindfulness basically, isn't it? Uh, then all the, none of this arises. You see what emptiness is really like and what it means, and you, know, you don't lose anything by letting go. Uh, all you lose is attachment, suffering. Uh, all these kinds of things you can discover. This is what the kind of examination is like. What mindfulness is really like is an examination. Uh, so you, so somebody's concerned about, you know, what emptiness, what's that like, it sounds scary or lack of self, you know, it's like some of the psychologists get really worried, you know, they read books about Samadhi and it's all about detachment and loss, loss of self and they, they freak out, you know, <laughs> because they're applying these to to ordinary mindsets, you know, where a schizophrenic would be describing themselves as detached and having a lack of self. But it's just words, isn't it? It's just a different use of words. Uh, we have to recognize, we have to be humble enough to recognize that there are strata, levels of experience in spiritual practice, things that we've never experienced before. So we have to be careful not to make judgment of them uh, or to use uh, kind of psychological terms too much in terms of spiritual goals otherwise we can get confused around these things. It's really just using the same word for two different things. Uh, it's a bit like this, there's, there's in a, it's sort of really funny recently, there's this there's this new thing in Norway, it's called uh, it's the New Tantra, which is this kind of, uh, it's a Tibetan thing, you know, this kind of uh, uh, Samadhi through sex, which which sounds absolutely great, doesn't it? I mean, if you get Samadhi through sex, it's like the best of both worlds, isn't it? I <laughs> think, oh, great, fantastic. And how you could get a sense of union through through physical union, you know. And then they, they equate uh, this kind of physical union with the union of somebody who, I mean, one of the characteristics of Samadhi is this sense of oneness with everything, everybody. So they'll equate these two kinds of union in using these words, the same word in a different context. To me, it's just different things you're talking about, not to be judgmental of any of those those things at all, but just to recognize the confusion that can happen when you use the same word for two different things, (laughs) isn't it? Anybody else? Yes, you So if you wait for the mic. Uh, you've been touching on this all the way through, but at the beginning of your talk, you, there was a sentence where you said, monks see things differently. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Um, well, at least... As time goes on you grow to see things differently. I mean, it's not like as soon as you stick the robe on you do like a magic trick or something, obviously. But I guess you wouldn't see, you wouldn't see things in a very mainstream way, otherwise you wouldn't ordain in the first place. Um, But what, what I'm pointing at is the fact that it's possible to change your perceptions of things in a very radical way. Uh, a lot of psychology is based on, that, on the idea that perception is a kind of fixed thing. You know, that, that as human beings we'll see things in a certain way and we'll be looking for... You know, we're out to look for the pleasures of the senses and to avoid the painful things. And, you see a lot of it's all taken for granted. Uh, And yet, feeling is always dependent upon perception. Feelings arise dependent upon perception. Buddhism is the thing that sees the power of perception. So if you turn around perception, you turn around all your feelings. So it's not just a sense of seeing things in a different way, but feeling about things differently. or you know you might say that the experienced practitioner has a different view on life to the to the ordinary person. And I don't mean to say monks or anything special in particular, but somebody who's gone very deep into their practice. This is what characterises it. One thing is the samadhi, the, these kinds of experiences, but the other thing is a change of view, and a very radical one. As so Longpo Lim, who I was telling you about. <coughs> He uh, he's been his internal experience. You ask William what his experience inside is. You know, outside he's just a very cool cat. You know, you see him uh, around the monastery, nav- not ruffled by anything. Uh, seemingly seeing everything the same, good or bad. You know, the, all the things of the world. You talk to him about his internal experience. He'll tell you he's been in ecstasy for the last forty years inside. Uh, and that what keeps him there is, is a perception, not a, not a meditation, although he still meditates uh, in order to kind of rest his mind. The thing that's keeping him in that, in that state is a perception, and it's a perception of the suffering of all con- conditioned phenomenon. So it's a, to me, it's, that's a complete turnaround of the worldly view. You know, isn't life great? You know? And the way to be happy is to be positive about life. Uh, because if, if for somebody who's, who's experiencing samadhi, then the way that you let go is you have a, you have a view of life as suffering, in one, one way or another, then what happens is not that you get depressed, but that you let go into, into, back into samadhi. So for him to be seeing the world as suffering is what's sustaining him in this state. Uh, and it's become a natural state now. You know, where he's, he's very much, he's, he's got a lot of compassion. This is the wisdom side. This of course also fills him with a lot of compassion. So he's an untiring worker for the people of Northeast Thailand. And, you know, he's, he's the head of the order and head of 300 monasteries. And yet, you would never you would never see, you will never see a moment of stress in Long Paul Ian. Uh, that's how far, that's the way it can go. You know, when he was, his heart was down to, I can't remember about, some of the some of, uh, other people who were in the know might remember better than me, his heart was down to about 60% function, I think. He had a, just a routine medical examination and they discovered that and panicked. Wanted to rush into hospital, and Lompoulian was completely sabai, completely peaceful about the whole thing. You know, and at that point, his attendants panicked and hid all the sledgehammers in the monastery to make sure that he didn't overdo it, working because they thought he was just going to keep working as usual. But he eventually, you know, they managed to persuade him to go to hospital and have a have a stent put in. now not had any objection to that. But he was completely peaceful around the whole thing. You know, this is a mark of somebody who is really uh, seeing in a different way. Good answer, bad answer. Is that what you were looking for? You can't say. Yeah, no good answer, um, but I'm just fascinated by this. It was that his seeing life as suffering, that mm. kept him in that place. Yes, yes, it's a paradox, isn't it? It's like, it's like, there's a phrase, isn't there, what what joy there is no happiness. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing to lose, nothing to seek. The mind can let go in any kind of circumstance. And that's actually, you, you, you consider that, you reflect upon that, that is an unassailable position. Because to him, you know, any kind of suffering, is just going to help him let go even more. Right. Thank you. But also, make him want to help even more, you know. There's two things, you know, the compassion element and the wisdom element. Over there, yes. Um, you talked about um, bringing the emotional world into peace, yeah. uh, and soon afterwards you talked about drawing our feelings into the heart. Could you just explain that a little further about, especially this, the emotional world into peace? Yeah. yeah okay. Well, I mean, here I'm talking about meditation practice. So, uh, uh, say you say you've got your mind concentrated at the nose tip on the breath. And then, all your emotions all your thoughts, and emotions are going on as usual, and yet you 've got this nice, peaceful bit of space there your nose tip okay and there can be two rea- there can be two reactions to this situation: one is to try and get rid of the emotions and get into the meditation that doesn 't work you know they're, they're, if you try to push them away they 're going to push you back you know, all these kind of dynamics you see happening uh, so uh, if you carry on, then what's likely to happen is that if, these, if the emotions keep coming, then eventually the emotions are going to draw you away from the breath and you're going to be thinking, okay, I've got to do something here. You know, I've got to sort these things out, but I've listened to what they've got to say or you know, go and or, or something. Uh, so then they're drawing you into, you're getting drawn into your emotions, into a kind of dialogue with your emotions. But to me, the art of meditation is to draw... Those emotions into the breath in the sense that you breathe, you allow them to come up as you're meditating and breathe through them, that would be a way of putting it. And then, uh, you know, concentration comes around as a, through time as a kind of uh, in a different way, it comes around through you being drawn in uh, gradually into the peace, but a peace that's not excluding anything, a peace that's including. What's arising? Uh, until there's nothing arising anymore. And then when there's nothing arising anymore, there you go. Bang, samadhi. Thank you very much. <laughs> and you never look back. You'll be a born-again Buddhist and you'll never look back. <laughs> oh Yes, a lot of people are coming into Buddhism now and looking for a way of relating to their emotional world. Uh, and there's a lot of wisdom in Buddhism on this one. Uh, you know, emotions operate in a completely different way if they're in space. So, if just the same as I was saying, if the if the mind is in the, the mind's not in the body, the body is in the mind. The body can exist in this kind of spacious, open mind. And of course, all our emotions are there as well, where the body is. So. If our emotions exist in this open, spacious mind as well, it's a different ball game completely. You know, they have a different, it's a different, that's it, you're into a different emotional world where you're not trapping your emotions into your body through your ideas. Your emotions fill the place. You know, they're they're bigger things roaming around all over the place. (laughs) They're all over the place, not just in here, they're all over the place which is where they are really, you know, it's just our our ideas that's kind of dragging them from being reactions and responses to the world and kind of putting them inside, you know, it's like, you know, this is what you can do when, you, you know, you look out there at the world and you get a whole lot of feelings going and then you look down at yourself, you're kind of dragging them in, you know, all strange things, you're doing, you know, this kind of strange things happening. Yeah, you can see yourself doing it, if you're really honest, you can see yourself doing it. I think... Do you think you have control then? Because when you have an emotion, it just—it appears. You feel it in the body, don't you? When you yeah, you feel. It, yes. Well, you—you—if you, your mind is in your body, you feel them in your body. Okay. Yeah. okay. So if your mind is attached to your body, you think that they are stuck there in your body, and there's nowhere else they can be. Okay. But if your mind's not atta- attached to your body, your emotional world is everywhere. Okay. You free up your emotional world. And that can be done instantaneously, that one doesn't have to spend forever in a day trying to get to that point. Oh, and The mind has to be relatively calm. Mm-hmm. A mind that's not calm is always grabbing after everything. A mind that's never seen space is always going to grab after everything, because it doesn't know that there's anything other than things. So you have to have had a bit of space in your mind. And I say somebody who's got good mindfulness, it finds a bit of space in the present moment, You do need a bit of space, otherwise, uh, you don't know how where you've got anything to let go into. You don't know where to go. You only have to have a tiny bit of a a taste for space, and then your mind can let go. And not an idea of it, but a taste of it. You know. Uh, So yes, you do have to practice there uh, isn 't really a shortcut on this. You have to get to the point where you 're there in the present and you 're opening a space As far as i 'm concerned that 's your minimum for, to get to really be able to see things clearly, otherwise mind is grabbing after everything, and the grabbing is complicating everything so as soon as you look down you know there'll be 'll be what you experience is the result between the feelings down here and what you're doing with your eyes, you're grabbing eyes, you know, until the mind's calm enough. But just to establish your mind in the present, that's, a, that's the thing, you know, and just to keep doing it, find a knack. And the space, that, the rest of it just carries on from there. It means at the beginning or not just at the beginning that you have to be willing to to be with unpleasant feeling that's the that's the thing you know so if you're if you're feeling a bit nervous giving a talk because you don't know anybody, then you have to be willing to stay with that, otherwise you lose your mind <laughs> uh, now I mean part like I said at the beginning you know there can be this kind of Uh, Tension, wondering whether... Because there's a kind of clash of values. uh, Underlying clash of values, which isn't often explicitly pointed out. You know? So I like to point it out. Uh, But it can be a dangerous thing to do. You know, it'd be easy for me to sit here and say, oh, we're all the same, we're all just working through our stuff, aren't we? And, you know, like that. A lot of people who do and you know we'll talk about how you can integrate practice into every aspect of, your, of people's daily lives i don 't believe that you know if you're really dedicated to practice, you have to be willing to give things up and do all kinds of things. So in this respect i 'm a bit more of an uncompromising teacher, but uh, that's the way it is and i 'm trying to save your life. If you've got a mind that's dependent on a body, what happens when the body dies? Now, this is a life or death matter. So important it is. Now, I worked in hospitals for 20 years trying to help people. They all died. Mm. I worked in stroke units and people with MS and motor neurone, I think probably all the people I treated 20 years ago are all dead by now. When I was in Anagarica at Chittos Monastery, I had a dream that I was a physio, I was a psychologist first and I was a physio. I had a dream that I was a physio running around the wards. and uh, There weren't people in the beds, there were just organs in the beds. You know, I'd go around and there would just be a pair of lungs in one bed and a, and a few entrails in another bed and, you know, a brain sitting in another bed. And uh, I was running around just thinking to myself, God, what am I going to do? You know, it's hopeless. <laughs> but, but now I see that that was actually a tremendous breakthrough. You know, and I told this story to a monk friend in Thailand, and he got really excited about it. You know, it's like, whoa! You know, good start, because uh, he knew about the pleasure of letting go, and he knew how potent those kinds of perceptions would be, in terms of letting go, but also in terms of generating compassion. Both things. And as the letting go gets lighter and lighter, I just, just had a week and a half week an retreat about death and dying. By the time it got to Wednesday, then it was all as light as a feather. Uh, because people were beginning to realize the joy of letting go. Because we're not our bodies, and we can see that we're not our bodies. You know, this is the radical nature of, of the Buddhist teaching, and then we can find ourselves in a secure position. We're not in a vulnerable position anymore, and then we have a refuge. Before that, we'd have no refuge. Now we can go. we can go from one life to another. And if you believe in rebirth, you know, you think, oh well, it's not that bad. You know, we get another life, get another swing at it. It's true, but where are we going to end up, you know? Here we are with this opportunity, we've got the Buddha's teaching and we can... We're intelligent people, and we've got the Buddha's teaching. Uh, people don't realize how deep this thing goes, what an incredible blessing it is. Uh, I just live in hope that people are going to realize, they see, they see the mindfulness side and they'll get faith in that because it works, you know, it really works, seeing it works in depression and anxiety, hugely. You know, the results are amazing. So that kind of thing is going to give enough people faith to take it further. If they fall in love with the present moment, then they're just going to keep wanting to take it further and further. And that's all you have to do. Simple as that. The whole thing is that, whole, the whole of Buddhism is that. Finding all the different ways that your mind goes out of the present and stopping them, stopping it, or uh, just finding a natural presence, completely natural presence. That's the deathless, that's what this place is for, Amaravati, the deathless realm. Yet it takes a lot of courage to look to look at these things, isn't it? You know, right in my face, I couldn't avoid it in the hospitals. I put myself in that position deliberately. But it takes a lot of courage to look at what our situation is as human beings and the fact that we're all going to get old and die. And yet that that process can be a source of terrible sorrow and anguish and pain and difficulty or it can be a source of joy. Because uh, it can be a source of letting go. It could all be a source of letting go. Freedom. If you hang on to something that's impermanent, it's got to be suffering, isn't it? What well, this comes around to is a is a life in which we're we're not seeking anything, but we we're still receiving the world into our into our uh, awareness. So we're not losing anything. Now, what's the difference between walking out of here and uh, picking the flowers, bringing them back in here and putting them in a vase and enjoying them, or just walking out there and just enjoying the flowers, sitting there in the beds. That's the difference between a spiritual life and a life that's caught up in the things of the senses. A life that's caught up in the things of the senses is gonna pick the flowers. And you're gonna try and grasp those experiences, take them home with you, and only to watch them die. Spiritual life is where you see the flowers and you leave them in the ground, right where they are you don't grasp them, you don't take them home, and they don't die. And yet, you know, the reality we have to come to terms with is that our minds have been grasping all our lives. That's the nature of the mind to grab everything. You know, like, like running up a ladder. You know, our whole life is like running up a ladder. 'Cause we don't know anything other than grasping until we've managed to for one moment to let go. So it can be a tremendous, humbly, tremendously humbling experience the first time. You think, Oh golly, what have I been doing all my life, you know? Here I was grabbing a hold of all these things. Thinking that were, I thought that all these things were trying to keep me going. You know, I thought my motorbike was keeping me going, you know. This is what kept me going in life. You know. But it was me that was keeping it going, wasn't it? Plumming <laughs> thing. <laughs> Something wrong with it. Hmm. Anybody else? Yeah. Oh, welcome! Anybody else? Uh, stop! Oh, yes, Tony. When you talk about wisdom, would you say that the wisdom gained from experience of personal suffering, when it comes to helping others, is equal to or greater than the wisdoms sort of gained, say, by academic study? Yeah, they're, they're, they're of a different order, obviously. <clears throat> uh, both, you, know, you can use this kind of uh, academic or theoretical stuff, you can use it. but. Uh, it's a question of what really matters. <clears throat> and what really matters in, a, in, in, in every case is the heart. The so heart's the most important thing that we're trying to look after through this whole uh, operation. So somebody who's experienced suffering themselves and is able to... Uh, has compassion and is able to, to uh, understand and relate to somebody on a heart level... Who's also suffering can help that person enormously. You know, the, the, the other things can help. You know, you can end up helping somebody's brain or helping somebody's body, or, or which can also also helpful, isn't it? Because we, what we're discovering is that the mind is dependent on these things. You know, so you don't want to. You want to help people's minds and bodies if you can. Um, but the heart is the most important thing. You know, so if you can be there. Uh, in accepting people's predicament. This is a very important thing. And there was a lovely uh, thing happened years ago in the 1970s of a famous lady called Kubler-Ross who was the founder of the hospice movement. She was a psychiatrist, a research psychiatrist in the early days of the hospice movement. And so she was observing the patients and how calm or agitated they were. Uh, through the day to try and find out what it was that helped people to be peaceful through these difficult circumstances and there was this mystery arose that on certain shifts or certain times of day then the patients were much calmer than other times of day and she couldn't work out what on earth was happening everything seemed the same she finally realised that the only thing that was different about these shifts so I get a bit emotional about this. <laughs> this is a lovely story. Uh, the only thing that's different about these shifts is one person who was a cleaner. And this, this cleaner was a black woman who had grown up in Harlem in the States in the most awful circumstances. <laughs> and uh, she'd had a terrible life, life of terrible suffering. So, for her, being in an oncology ward and around people with cancer was acceptable. She could accept their situation because she'd suffered so much herself. And that acceptance was what was calming the patients. That's lovely. I can never tell that story without a tear or two, I'm afraid. Uh. so it 's also a power of of somebody who has taken themselves through things like someone like long paul Liam you know like where he lives is not an easy place at all what uh, pop so it's in the in the rains it 's a twenty four hour mosquito experience uh, for example now all the all the meditation halls are open so once a week he'll do an all-night sitting where through the night you're being bitten by mosquitoes all night. Uh, so someone like him has been through that once a week for the last 30, well, 40, no, 40, over 40 years. And that strengthened him, you know, his ability to endure. Uh, so that kind of unpleasant feeling is not something that's throwing his mind you know, so this is danger of comfort in a comfortable society or being in a situation where we can you know, just uh, go for the comfortable option every time is that we lower our threshold. You know, whereas if you're somebody who's lived a difficult life and suffered through life, you've got a much higher threshold both for yourself and for other people. You know, so you can tolerate other people's suffering just the same as you can tolerate your own on this level. You can accept it because you can accept it and that makes you a very uh, useful person because you're not thrown in any way. Uh, it also means that you can think clearly. You know, In the face of suffering you can still apply your thinking mind and use the academic stuff as well. So I noticed this when I came back from Thailand. Once where I had a particularly tough time just before I got back, where I was in a monastery where they had no mosquito repellent and um, there were a lot of mosquitoes, it was, and the, the, even the mosquito nets didn't work. The mosquitoes got through. Amazingly, you know, you imagine there I was lying in bed, and you could see the mosquitoes. Light, they'd go up to the mosquito net, they'd sit on the mosquito net for a little while and then they'd wriggle through. And I was watching them, I you was know, sitting there watching them, I couldn't believe it, oh no! <laughs> uh, crafty little mosquitoes. So, <laughs> so, uh, and when I came back, you know, I'd been through all this, and when I came back for a while, life was just so easy back here. You know, it's like when you go when you're young and you go on a camping trip. You know, with your mates, and you get completely wet and tired and cold and everything. You know, and you but you get through and you get home. And it's like, oh God, this is fantastic. You know, sitting in the settee, you think, wow. You know, and for a while, life's easy until you start creeping back. It starts creeping back at you, isn't it? Yeah. Well, what I realized at this time, there was a few difficult things happening on the emotional front at home and, you know, difficult stuff going on. But I realized that I could tolerate that. I could tolerate difficult emotional feelings just the same. I wasn't thrown by it. So so I could have some strong emotion coming up about something and it's, oh, okay, this is uncomfortable. But my mind remained clear. To find something to do, to find a skillful response. So, this is a really important one, and, it, and the fact that you know, we can really develop ourselves in this way, or we can, you know, it's great to have working class friends, you know, who've really been through it in their early life, because it adds a steadiness, a kind of solidity, or a place like this, you know. It's great to have people around who've had difficult lives because there's a whole solidity to it. You begin to realize the importance of this kind of dimension. Of course, this is all to do with the body as well, isn't it? You know, again, it's another aspect of your relationship to your body, how worried you are about physical discomfort of one kind or another, or discomfort, unpleasant feeling of one kind or another, whether it really throws your mind or not. Yes, just behind Tony. Um, thank you very much, Venerable Sir, for that uh, elucidating uh, presentation. Could I just um, ask you, sir, you highlighted the importance of letting go. Yeah. And leave a little bit of space so that you can just get things sorted out. But how do you let go? Yes, well... You've you got a yeah. body. Yeah. Unless I kill myself, I can't. Yes. i got a mind. I don't know where it is, but you know, somewhere there. But uh, <laughs> uh, if you well, don't know a, where it is, how, yeah, how yeah. can you get them, uh, let them go? Yeah, this is a really important... Thank you very much for asking that question, sir. That's a very good question, a very important point, because, yes, we talk about letting go as a thing to do, and yet uh, you can't actually do it. It's not something that you can just do. You know, so if I, if you if you've heard me saying, you know, I haven't actually said just let go. I haven't said it. I've talked to you about practice, which leads to that. You know, so people can make a leap in their minds and go say, okay, so okay, so how do I let go? Tell me how do I let go? I want to let go. I can't see how do I do it. And that's making a kind of leap with the mind and thinking that letting go is something you can just do, but it isn't something you can just do it's a fruit of the practice you have to practice mindfulness you know you have to bring yourself into the present and as a result of bringing yourself into the present you're letting go of the past and future a result of bringing yourself into the present is eventually to gather your mind into the present moment sufficiently that you actually become aware of your mind your present your own presence of mind that's the key t- that's a key point you become aware of your own presence of mind at that point you're aware of your mind and you know where it is and what it's up to it's only at that point before that you are in the dark about where your mind is and what it's up to you don't know where it is until you've got a reference point your reference point is mindfulness yeah. <coughs> So, in my mind, there's a lot of teachers now who tell people to let go. You know, their, their underlying teaching is, well, just let go and be equanimous, okay? Just do that, that's it. That's all you need to do, just let go and be equanimous. But I think that's really wrong because you can't, it's not something that you can actually do, it's something that comes around. You know, you can spend your life trying to let go and it's like, it's like you, it, it's, uh, you now the Buddha said that practicing like this gives an analogy, so it 's like a it 's like a monkey uh, who gets caught by a tar trap, which is a in the old days used to put a, used to put tar onto this horrible thing to do It's gruesome i 'm afraid they' put tar onto a piece of wood, and a monkey would put a paw onto the piece of wood and get stuck with the tar and then it would try and get itself off. That piece of wood by with its other hand and get the other hand stuck to the piece of t- stuck to the tar. Then it try and push itself off with its foot to try and get itself off. And what happens? The whole poor animal gets completely everything stuck to the tar. So it's not that you can kind of you get stuck and you can just push yourself off because you just get more stuck. Uh, this is a difference between there 's a talk coming up about this, I think you know the letting go or getting rid of you know this is a very important aspect. You know people grasp this idea of letting go and think, "Oh, this means getting rid of something, pushing you know, let 's get okay let 's get rid of this thing, not that so letting go of the body means just letting go of your attachment to the body and then experiencing the body within the mind and so the mind. The mind lets go of your, your attention, your, lets go of its attachment, grows a bit, grows bigger than the body. Your, your body then appears within this field of attention called the mind. Uh, that's, the, that's the turning point. Uh, then, you can, then you've already let go of the body, isn't it? If you, see, if you see that your body is in your mind, your mind isn't in your body, you've already let go of it. That's how you can let go of it, just seeing it like that. And actually one of the natural results of of the concentration practice is the mind can become peaceful enough that you just see it like that. So you could be sat there innocently one day doing your anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, meditation, concentration, and then you look at your hand and it will appear to you in a completely different way. You look at it and think, oh, funny thing, you know. (laughs) Like it's somebody else's. It just won't seem the same. So, the mind's gone peaceful. And he's not putting itself, your mind's no longer putting itself into that hand. So, it just appears in a different way, and there it is. I remember looking at my hand once and, and just going, oh, look at that, it's just like a glove full of pebbles. A string string on the back. You know. Just the same as with my teeth. Oh they just like it's like a rock pool in there. You know, and that perception, you know, that perception of the mouth like a rock pool is already having let go. You know, through the through through the mind becoming peaceful, then that's just the experience just becomes like that is having let go of attachment and seeing, they said, the, the body being in the mind, the mind being in the body, the body being this object floating about in the mind. And yet, if you point at these kinds of experiences, which is what I do when I give retreats and so on, you know, you, some people will have fleeting experiences like this and they don't recognize the significance of them. But if you have, you have experiences like this, if you recognize what's happening, then it can make that much more important experience in your life. Radical. You know, in my last retreat we were playing games with perceptions around the body to try and break the habitual one. You know, just, just to break this idea like if you're going for a shower, you try and break this kind of habitual perception, here I am going for a shower, by imagining there are people at the zoo washing a penguin with a hose, and you think of yourself before you take a shower say okay i 'm going to go wash the penguin <laughs> right and it's absurd enough you know silly enough to be light enough you know like the light mind spacious light spacious mind, to get you right in there in the in the right ballpark for if you to see it in a different way as not you, just washing something like like washing somebody else's body, or washing the, the penguin in the zoo. Or I was getting people at breakfast time to imagine eating like a washing machine, or brushing your teeth like, um, like unearthing a skull from the, in the desert. You know, like you were with a little brush and you were brushing the sand away from the teeth and unearthing a skull in the desert. You know, it's all skillful means to try and break the normal perception of the body and see it in a different way. Just see it as a natural phenomenon that you're looking after. If you can see like that, you've already let go. But if you if you go around thinking, oh, "I've got to let go," "I've got to let go," then you're just it, what you're just ending up hanging on again. You're hanging on with aversion instead of thinking that thinking you've got to try and this is a thing I've got to try and get away from. The Buddha says this is like a dog who's tied to a post. You know, trying to get away from the post by running around the post. You just end up even more tightly bound to it. So you have to use the, you have to use the, the, the calming of the mind and your perception, your manipulating perception in order to let go one or the other or both. And yeah, ultimately, you know, the big ones come around when you're not trying to do anything. i you know, worked work like this for years and years. I I you know, worked like this for years and years, you know, out of curiosity. You know, that was my big thing. You know, I just got into studying all this and I got fascinated by the whole thing. So I just kept watching and you know, what happens when, oh, look at that, you know, like this, about, about the nature of perception and, and uh, particularly around the body. Uh, and then one day you can just be doing this like you were, you know, you're still just trying to work it out, and all of a sudden you just start laughing. I mean, this is what normally happens, you know. You know when somebody's, you know when somebody's had a bit of a breakthrough or mindfulness of the body, because they'll be taking a shower or something, and you can hear them giggling away behind the, cur- behind the curtain. All of a sudden, something completely ordinary seems completely absurd, funny. Now, it's a very light thing, you know, this thing. It can end up that you can end up being light, light about death, even. It's the heaviest thing in the world, isn't it? So yes, thank you for that question, sir. That's uh, right on the button. Anybody else? It's quarter past four, so please go if you... uh, We've gone past time, perhaps it's enough. Has anyone anyone got a burning one before we go? Just one thing to say perhaps before people part is just the... to this, in terms of the body, to seeing the body is not who and what you are. If you see this correctly, then the mind would let go and you'll experience joy and happiness. Um, but, the, but if you don't see it correctly, then you can be just, again, trying to get away from and kind of, in a sense of, you know, you, you, can, you can hear people with a kind of arrogance in their minds, oh, I'm not my body, ha, 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 <laughs> you know, this is not it. You know the, the mind, the mind that that lets go of the body. There's no sense of self in it. If somebody says, "I am not my body. It's just an idea," and it's a dangerous idea because they're not going to look after it properly, and it's going to be a lot of hassle to them, isn't it? You know so i 've been in this situation with monks, you know where they say, you know somebody will start getting pain in their knee or something they say i 'm no or i 'm not my body ha 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 you know and they don 't do the exercises that I suggest for them and then two weeks two or three weeks later, oh dear they come to my room again and say oh, John, I need help and, you know, Have you done your exercises no <laughs> you know now you're not your body. <laughs> now tell me you're not your body. Yeah. There, was a, there was a monk who told, who said this to the famous Buddha Dhamma, Zen Master Buddha Dhamma, and the, uh, way back, he said, you know, he said, Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, which is like saying, I'm not the body, right? And what, what response did he get? Uh, Buddha Dasa hit him as hard as he could. <laughs> so feel that <laughs> so another great teacher the same thing you know someone was doing meditation on the breathing and they're saying you know I, I'm, I'm independent of my body you know he says, I'm independent of my body and this great meditation master grabbed hold of this person put his hand over their mouth and nose this person started to panic you know the meditation was like, ah ha Sorry, not your body, right? <laughs> Independent, are dependent, are we? All right. yeah. mm. Okay, I think that's enough. Thank you very much.